focus will be on verses 35 through 39. Mark 1, verse 35. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions hunted for them, him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, in order that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, the Savior of the world, the Messiah. Help us to see him in all of his glory and yet understand his humanity, that he did these things in the flesh and he walked among men and he taught and he gave an example and yet he did the assignment for which you sent him. And he was perfect in carrying out these things, not for his own glory, and yet brought glory to himself as he brought many people to glory. And so we ask that we would see him, that you would give me strength to proclaim him, that we may honor him and worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We see Jesus, presumably, as far as I can understand the, the text, the early morning he refers to as after that great Sabbath day. Last week we looked at all of those different things, the preaching in the synagogue and the exercising the man of a, a demon, and then the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and finally but not least, the whole city of Capernaum at the door for bringing their sick and ill and demon-possessed that he may heal them. And so we have the morning after, the beginning of what we will see and mark of a larger ministry, a preaching tour through Galilee, through all, as, as one of the writers said, through all the little villages and towns that studded the Sea of Galilee. We'll see him on a preaching tour in various towns. We'll see him return, and Mark just uses, he returned home. And I assume that the home for Jesus was his uh, time that he spent with Peter and Peter and Andrew's house. Sometimes we'll see him at sea as he is in the boat or walking on the sea. And yet here is the, the beginning, a time when we see the Lord being prepared, preparing himself for this tour. But I think also that Mark helps us understand that Jesus has come for people. He has come to save people from their sins. And we begin to see more of the characteristics of the disciples and those who encountered Jesus, those who sought Jesus out. The lepers, the demon-possessed, the, uh, the ill, the infirm. And we see, begin to see how people responded 
to Jesus. And not just responding, but people, the expectations of what they thought Jesus was supposed to be doing. And I think that comes across in Mark's account of this early morning. But here we see that he directs us to two, perhaps the two most important aspects of Jesus' ministry. In the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Where did he go? Well, it says in the early morning, and the commentators help me understand that this early morning, this last watch of the night is what it is, from 3 to 6 a.m. And the wording apparently is in the earliest part of the early morning. So, you know, you do the math. It's somewhere around 4 a.m. that he quietly gets up and departs Peter's house. And he went out and departed to a lonely place. He seems to be, um, if we have just come off of this exhausting, what to, to me seems an exhausting evening, when all had come to him, the whole city gathered at the door, and him performing these miracles, and it's almost as if he's in retreat. But what was he doing there? He was praying. The language could be that he, was, he began praying there, or that he continued in prayer there. But in any case, he is praying. And the word for prayer there is always used in the New Testament to indicate prayer to God. It's not just when somebody beseeches someone else or asks something of someone else. It is coming, bowing before the Lord, prostrating oneself spiritually before the Lord in prayer. But what was he praying about? What was this occasion? Again, many say, well, look what's coming after this great ministry tour, the things that he's going to encounter. And when we see Jesus uh, in passages like this, where they specifically focus on his time praying, we see that it is generally before a big event, before this preaching tour, or before his uh, selecting, or at least announcing his selection of the disciples. And before he goes to the cross, even, we see him in Gethsemane. And yet, perhaps his prayer is also directed to God asking that he would not be ensnared by his own popularity. That he, he would not be caught up in, in these things that would draw him back and out of his mission. Or perhaps that he would not be induced to ways of ease, one commentator said, instead of his duty. I, I sometimes would have a hard time thinking of Jesus doing that, being induced to a, a, a labor or a life of ease, as we have already seen him expending himself in the service of other souls. Perhaps it was to prepare him for ministry, perhaps thinking and praying for those men that he has called to follow him, Peter and James and John and Andrew. But perhaps simply 
that he knows that he needs communion with God his Father. When I read Psalms like Psalm 95, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us come before him with singing. Let us worship the Lord. Let us sing to the Lord a new song. These are things that the psalmist had in mind. Does, do we think that Jesus did not? That he would not simply enjoy being with the Heavenly Father. My father has passed away, but I can remember those occasions when he would ask me, you know, do you want to go with me to do this or that? And, I, and there is something now about being a grandfather and having uh, my grandchildren, you know, do you want to go in the shop or do you want to go get the mail? Something simple and they, yeah, let's go. Let's be with you. Do you not think that Jesus wanted to be with his heavenly father? that simply wanted to go and have communion. Now there are some who would preach this passage as this, this is the great example. You need to be getting up before dawn, before the light of day, and experiencing a quiet time. When I was a young Christian, I was a freshman in college when I came to Christ, and I, I, that's the wrong phrase, when he came to me. <laughs> I was given a booklet, Seven Minutes with God. And I, I don't know, I guess that's how they treated me. The folks that helped me in the Lord um, used the phrase, you know, babes in Christ, and, and treated me, I, I guess, as a babe in Christ. That's seven minutes, that's about all you can handle. <laughs> um, hopefully, over the years, I moved on from that. I had an acquaintance uh, at the same college. He had an expression. He said, you know, I follow the, the triple B, Bible before breakfast. That he, he made it a practice that I, I, he would spend some time in the Word before he spent some time in the feedback. As a pastor, I I'm, I'm, have heard the phrase many uh, have, have said to me or hinted to me, you know, before you talk to men about God, be sure you talk to God about men. And, and I get that. But I'm not here to say that unless you're getting up at 4 a.m. and having your quiet time and reading more than seven minutes that you are in sin. But I think the example of the Lord is that, yes, perhaps he came to talk to God about his ministry. Perhaps he came to God to talk about the men that he was dealing with. Perhaps he came to God to prepare himself for the day of ahead. But again, I can't imagine that Jesus would not simply just enjoy communing with the Heavenly Father. And is that our attitude? Is that our desire? Charles Spurgeon, in his book to students, told of a, an acquaintance, and in fact, uh, he learned from the man's wife uh, this, this anecdote that she told about her husband. His name is Joseph Aline, or Elaine. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. He would have lived probably in the, the mid to late 1800s to be an acquaintance of, of uh, Spurgeon, but his wife said that, that he 
Joseph Aline would, would be troubled if he heard the Smiths and the other craftsmen at their trades before he was at communion with his God. See, his attitude was, and he said this to his wife, does not my master deserve more than theirs? And again, this is it's a heart attitude. It's not a time of day. It's a heart attitude of I want to be with my heavenly father. I want to have that communion with him. And yes, we have many, many things on our heart and mind. If you're a parent, you, you, you double, triple that. If you have teenagers, you know, it's exponential. You have things that you need to pray about, things that you need to talk to the Heavenly Father about. And yes, prayer can be difficult because we don't like to focus that kind of time. We say we are busy. And yet it's something that we ought to learn from Christ, that we ought to be bowing before the Heavenly Father, that this ought to be a priority for us to do, to practice daily, to be before the Father. But the disciples didn't get up at 4 a.m. with Jesus. In fact, what we understand from the scriptures here, that they got up expecting to go into uh, the room where he might have been sleeping and say, you know, we're getting up, it's time for breakfast, it's the first day of the week, uh, we've got things to do. Um, expecting things to happen, and yet he wasn't there. Mark writes, and Simon and his companions hunted for him. And we, I think we learn a couple of little things from that simple verse. Uh, first of all, I think we learn that Mark, the gospel writer, was not from South Carolina. I think if he had been, he simply would have said, Peter Nam. Peter and his companions, is, yes, that's what he means, but we, we, don't we say, you know, the first one, the leader of the group, the one who kind of gathers everybody, hey, Jesus isn't here, where is he? We need to find him. He would have said, Peter and them, they went, but they didn't simply ask around town or say, well, you know, he's, he's off, he'll be back. The, the word is, and the New American Standard, I think, hits, gets it here, they hunted for him. They pursued him or chased him. They went after him as one hunting prey. They wanted to know where he was, but they were concerned about him. And we don't know how many were here. His companions, probably, again, Andrew, James, and John, along with, and I say Peter, he's calling him Simon here because Jesus hasn't given Peter his new name. But they were the ones who had chosen to follow him, and now they are pursuing him, hunting him down. And they kept up that search, obviously, until they found him. We don't know where this lonely place was. There was desert, there were forests, there were mountains, there was uh, lots of water around. He could have been almost anywhere, but they kept the hunt up until they found him. And their phrase, their expression to him was, everyone is looking for you. As if Jesus needed to respond immediately to that statement. Peter is, I think, even though he's still called Simon here, I think we start to see a little bit of Peter. 
the ringleader, the one who's, yeah, yeah this is what Jesus ought to be doing. The, the people are looking for you. They, they heard about last night or they came last night and they're coming again. They want to see you. You need to be there. You're, you're missing out. There's a great opportunity here. You can, you can do the miracles. You can excite this crowd again. You can draw even more because all around Galilee, they're hearing about you and they're starting to come. And Peter felt his message surely would make Jesus turn around and head back into Capernaum. But why didn't Jesus do that? I mean, think about it. Think about his experience that we've learned so far in Capernaum. When he went into the synagogue and began to preach, people were struck. They were amazed at his teaching. He taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And then they saw him cast out the demon. They, they heard the cry of the demon as, as he left. They knew what had happened to the man who had been exorcised, the demon exorcised from him. They heard him speak to the demon, be quiet and come out of him. They were, they were amazed at these things. And they saw him heal and they brought people to him and they watched as he healed many, person after person, all evening before. Wouldn't you think that Jesus would say, yeah, here, here is my reception, here is the people who are listening to me and want me to be with them. But instead, he says, let us go elsewhere. And this idea that let's go into elsewhere into the towns nearby, I mean, these, these are just small little places. They're not even big enough to put on the map like Capernaum. Right? They're just little towns and villages of, of no real importance. And yet Jesus says, let's, let's go there. Let's go to these nearby towns. Even John Calvin in his commentary, he, he asks rhetorically, I think, to, to ask the reader, you know, think about this. Is it better for Christ to run here and there or to stay and instruct believers perfectly in one place? You've got a captive audience in Capernaum. Why would you go here and there to these other villages? But then we think about what we already know in the Gospels. What happens when he went to other towns and performed miracles there? Remember what, he, what happened when he went to his hometown of Nazareth? The scripture says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And he went to the country of the Gadarenes. Remember the, the, the demon that was wild and just frightening everybody. And he expelled those demons and sent them into a herd of swine. And what does the scripture say? The whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they entreated him to depart from their region. We don't need your kind around here. We don't want you here. Jesus had a captive audience in Capernaum where he would not find that same receptivity in other places, and yet he says, let us go elsewhere into the nearby towns, for that is why I came out. 
Jesus isn't answering, I think, what Peter's real question is, what are you doing? Jesus is answering the question you need to be asking, why am I doing this? Why did I come out here? Why am I wanting to go to these other places? And, and the language is he's singling out an event in a very special way that I may preach there also. This, he says, this is what I came out for. And I don't believe that he's saying this is what I came out of Capernaum for. I don't believe, as some do, that this is what I came out of Nazareth for. I had that nice life. I was a carpenter's son, and I got trained in carpentry, and I was preparing myself, and I had a nice, quiet, kind of idyllic life there. But this is what I, I came out for. I believe we would go back to John, and we would hear him say, the Father has sent me. This is what the Father has sent me to do, is to come and proclaim his word. The design of God was to awaken the minds of men. The miracles, the healing, all of these things were signs and seals, yes, of the preaching of the gospel, that he had that authority. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us of, of preaching and preachers, that this was the plan of God. I use the New Testament to reflect back on the Old. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. And what does he call him? A preacher of righteousness. In Matthew 12, we hear of Jonah. It says, men of Nineveh will condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. There were, there were men preaching the word of God, even in the Old Testament. There were people proclaiming the gospel of God, even in its infancy in the Old Testament. But what is preaching? Dr. Piper, the president of the seminary where I went, says it's an authoritative, public, verbal proclamation by one appointed to the task. The, the word used for preaching, for preacher, is the root for the word herald. It's one who by an order of a superior makes a public statement. It's a, one who has been sent with a message, who has a message to proclaim, but he's under authority. He, it's, we, we read about it in the passages that, like 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 30. Where, where men, runners, it says, are proclaiming the message of the king. But they proclaim the message of the king with all the authority of the king himself. See, they have a message that they've been given, but they have authority to, of the king to proclaim that message. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means to reject the herald's message is to reject the king himself. And... We see something of that herald in, in the passage that our brother read this morning in the law, didn't we? They came back with the message. This is the land that God has given to us. We can do this. God is with us. And what do we see later on in that passage? God is saying to them, you know, I will bring all of these calamities on you and you will not enter into that land 
because you've seen the signs and you've seen those wonders. But the end of the verse says, but you did not listen to my word. The herald does not have the authority to add or to take away from the message of the king, but he has the authority of the king to proclaim it, and to reject it is to reject the king. And so now if we bring that idea into the herald, into the preaching of the word, we find that it is a, an authoritative public verbal proclamation of what the king has said. The authority of one appointed to the task. And we believe in this church that God has given men that task. Men that task to proclaim the word. Who've been given the authority by the elders, by acclamation of the congregation to present the word of God authoritatively. Because it's not our word, it's his presenting his message to his people. And we believe in the centrality of preaching. John MacArthur wrote, God purposely chose a method and message that the world's wisdom counts as foolishness. We, we know that Paul said that, 1 Corinthians. He says, for indeed the Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Well, that hasn't changed, 21st century, but people are still seeking signs. They're still seeking wisdom. But he says, we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Greeks, Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I do believe that we are called to preach and to teach. But it's interesting in the New Testament that the number of times the word teach and the preach is used is two to one in favor of preaching. And I'm not saying that's the definitive you know, statistic that says preaching takes priority over teaching. I think good preaching has teaching in it. But the priority is to proclaim the word of God, Christ and him crucified, Paul says. But why? because it is an, a special authority to proclaim, but also it is a special hearing in the heart of the hearer. Because he says, those whose heart are not prepared, it's gonna be foolish. It's gonna be a stumbling block on the one hand that they can't get over. On the other hand, it's gonna be, oh, this is not wise, this is foolish stuff. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, it's Christ. Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. That is the message that is preached. And Jesus said that this preaching would continue until the end. In Matthew 24, we read Jesus saying, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the world, whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. This is what will last. This is what will be the bedrock of his ministry and ought to be the bedrock of our ministry. God has chosen one primary method for bringing his word to men and women and children, and it is preaching. The prime place and authority and centrality of the preaching 
of the word in the church must not be abandoned. I have had, and I was going to use the word fortune, but the Lord has blessed me and my family that for the 34, 35 years we've lived in Greenville, we've probably been in another church service and another church probably six times. And I don't know what other churches do in their service except what I read about some. Sunday school takes the place of preaching, but Sunday school is not preaching. Music ministry is not preaching. Reading scripture is not a substitute for preaching. Counseling, mime, theater, interpretive dance, they are not preaching. I read about a revival that is, I guess, trying to be started in America. I hadn't seen this before, but apparently last weekend was the beginning of something called The Send. And the idea is that this would be the greatest Jesus movement since the 1970s. And 40,000 people gathered in Orlando, Florida, not to go to Disney World, but to have a preaching service. But I understand there were 20 speakers and 14 bands, as in musical bands. And I guess it's a good thing that one of the speakers who spoke last after all of the other things had been done and all of the bands had put away their instruments, he said, you know what? There are many people in the world who do not have what you could enjoy here, speakers and bands, but I think it's time to put away the instruments and go preach. I don't know what their real message will be. I lived through the last Jesus movement and frankly there was a lot of foolishness in that that was not preaching. But here, what I read in a book uh, written by a man by the name of Gabriel Grossi, he says, when we reject the centrality of biblical preaching, we despise the God who has instituted preaching to accomplish his redemptive purposes. When we reject the centrality of preaching of the word, we reject God. We despise him because he ordained the foolishness of preaching is how he would reach men and women with the gospel. Paul warns us, but I think he also encourages us in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. I think we see Jesus wielding both of the primary weapons of our warfare, prayer and the ministry of the word and preaching. The church fights the good fight of faith with prayer and preaching. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes again, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything giving thanks. There is your quiet time. There is your life. There is your daily passage. Rejoice in him. Pray constantly. In everything, give thanks. In 2 Timothy 4, we read Paul's charge to Timothy 
I solemnly charge you, and I think by extension all of those who are appointed to preach the word, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and instruction. See, there's teaching. There is rebuke. There is knowledge in preaching. But it's the proclamation of the word that is central. Preach the word. And so we find Paul's ending of, in Colossians again. I think Paul can warn and encourage at the same time. And I think it would be to us to, to take to heart what he says in Colossians 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that we might follow close the example and the purpose of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we as a, as a body and we as, as individuals might walk with you in communion, not only in pouring out our needs and our, our concerns for our brethren, but also just to enjoy being with you. And we ask, Father, that you would bless the preaching of the word, the, the proclamation of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done and that great day when he will come to bring us to be with him. We ask that you would do these things for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.